Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. James Lowe is the lead singer and guitarist of the Electric Prunes, a psychedelic rock band from L.A. famous for its 1966 hit, I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night. The group's music was sometimes weird, but I found James to be an easygoing, down-to-earth guy with a great sense of humor. Here's our talk with James Lowe of the Electric Prunes. When we first uh, started communicating on this, you said like you were going to be in L.A. for like three weeks or something like that? Yeah. Where, where do you normally live? Uh, sort of between here and the Dominican Republic. Oh, really? I've been living there more more time, but I don't tell people that. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't tell people? You want me to edit that part out? <laughs> yeah, edit that. <laughs> I won't divulge your secret, you know. No, I don't care. <laughs> oh, okay, then uh, maybe I'll leave it in. What the hell? I've never been there. Ah, uh, beautiful. I've been going there for like 30 years. I guess you must like it. Uh, yeah, very much. How did you get into music in the first place? I went to Hawaii right after high school to go surfing, and I started playing a little guitar with a guy that played banjo, and we had like a bluegrass group. And I came back to California by 19... 19- 65, I think it was, I uh, decided I wanted to start a band. It seemed like what was happening, if you know what I mean. So you're from California originally, though? I was born here, and I grew up here. Okay, so it, what moved you out to Hawaii? The lure of the soft wind and the palm trees, and uh, and at that time it was surfing, and I wanted to try to be a beach boy. I saw a, a video of you being interviewed by a young woman on YouTube. You look like my idea of a surfer. Well, <laughs> you got to look like something. <laughs> Can't argue with that. So you go back to L.A. and you want to be in a band, and so you start a band? Yep, it looked like to me that's what was happening. Everybody who was doing anything was in in music. I like the Beach Boys, and I love the Beatles, the, the beginning of the, the Beatles and the Stones, so I thought that's what's happening. You, you should start a band. So it was Quint and Mark and Ken and I. We decided rather than playing live gigs, we just go in the garage every day and rehearse and uh, and try to get a record deal. Instead of doing it the hard way and playing a bunch of live gigs, it would seem to me to be easier than to record and make a record deal. I read that you were discovered by a real estate agent. Is that true? <laughs> what it actually was was a, a girl named Barbara Harris who was had a friend who was a real estate agent, and she was showing a house near Mark Tulin's house where we were rehearsing. Uh, she was wandering around while they were looking at the house and uh, came down and asked Mark's dad if she could come in and listen to the music. He said, sure. So they, she came in and, and we did played some songs and uh, she seemed to like it. And she said, hey, I might know somebody who could help you guys out. Yeah, really? She said, yeah, I know this guy. He's engineering the Rolling Stones and he wanted to get a group. So maybe you guys would fit the bill. And we thought, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that going on around here, you know? Oh, yeah. So uh, we didn't think much of it. And sure enough, about two or three weeks later, she called and said, uh, my friend is having a birthday party, and Dave Hassinger, the guy, is going to come to the birthday party, so why don't you guys come and play? So that's what we did. birthday party was uh, at Annette Tucker's house, who ended up being the girl that wrote Too Much to Dream last night. And her husband, Maury, was having his 40th birthday or something. We went and played, and Dave came. 
And he said, you guys are terrible, but come on and practice, and uh, we'll hear you in a couple of weeks. And so we went through a few of those kind of things, meeting with him, and then we decided we were actually going to make a record. I heard you practice at Leon Russell's house. Right. Dave knew uh, Leon, and Leon had a studio in his house. It was kind of a home-rigged studio with a control room in the kitchen, and and you had to go through a hallway in between, and there was no line of sight between the kitchen and the recording room. Oh, my. So uh, instead of wasting money in the studio, we, we would go to Leon Russell's house and play and record on four-track and sort of build up our chops for the recording studio so we so we knew what Dave expected in the recording studio. When did you get your record deal? I know you had an album before Too Much to Dream. We, we did these demos, part of it at Leon's and part of it at American Recording. And I think we were presenting them to Decca and Reprise showed up and we did a song called Ain't It Hard. And that was going to be a release on uh, on Reprise. They were going to give us a chance to make a hit, you know. Uh-huh. Reprise released Ain't It Hard. And my mom bought it, and I think Mark's mom bought it. But those are the only sales we had. So <laughs> they said, okay, we'll go back in the studio and give you another chance. So we did about five or six songs. Too Much to Dream was in that session. Everybody always asked me, did you know it was a hit? Hey, you know what? I was so green and so discouraged by the record business that everybody said, they listened to that record and they said, it's real nice, but who would play something like that? <laughs> it's been considered so odd, you know? Now, the, the okay. name, of course, your, your group name was definitely odd, too. How did that come about? Because you didn't start out as the Electric Prunes. When we put out Ain't It Hard, they said, you've got to have a name to put on the record, because we kept saying, we'll have to tell you the name later. It was a joke at that time. What's, it sounds terrible. What's purple and goes buzz, buzz? Like a knock, knock joke. The answer was an electric prune. <laughs> so we had one weekend before the record was released and they said, you gotta come up with a name by Monday or, or else, you know. So I told Dave, well, the name's gonna be the electric prunes. He absolutely hated it. But I said, well, you name, call it anything else you want, but that's going to be the name of the band. He didn't make any bones about the fact that he hated it, but he took it to Warner Brothers. And that night he presented it, he called me and he said, you're not going to believe this. They love the name. <laughs> <laughs> I said, but there's just one cardinal to it. I had to tell him I thought it up. Oh, I see. Okay. hating <laughs> <laughs> it to authorship in one day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, what a politician. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that was the era of the weird names, combinations of things you wouldn't expect, like the the strawberry alarm clock. What was it? The chocolate watch band. I mean, that was a real thing back then. Right. But when we did it, nobody else did it. Oh, are you guys bands, the first? All those bands are behind us. Electric flag, electric everything. We were, we were the first ones with... Uh, with that, I don't remember. I mean, remember, we're from the era of Petula Clark. Oh, yeah. And it was a little earlier than the craziness that took place later. Because we released uh, Too Much to Dream in 66. And I think the Blues Magoos were out. That was a kind of a psychedelic name. Yeah, yeah, the Blues Magoos. But it's not the same as the Strawberry Alarm Clock or the Electric Prunes. It, it's not quite as weird. You know, the funny thing is the Strawberry Alarm Clock went to the same high school that Mark and Ken went to. So they were kind of heroes there at the high school. So I always thought that kind of must have influenced them to come up with something weird. You know, we came up with something weird. 
Yeah, when, when I was in school, we had a, a jug band. It was just a joke, but you know, we we did it, and we called ourselves the Gingerbread Psychosis. Well, there you go. Same kind of deal. So, see, you're guilty too. Yeah, right. Well, we were just following you guys. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> that's all. Where'd you go to high school? <laughs> uh, now, the the song itself, it wasn't envisioned the way you guys played it. Isn't that right? No, it was like almost like a, a country ballad when we heard it. Soft and no breaks or no anything like that. But Dave Hassinger was a, he was a fanatic about the arrangement. He said, you guys take this and ar- I want to hear you arrange it a different way. I don't want to hear it sound like this, you know, make it sound like something else. So he was doing the Rolling Stones and we thought, well, maybe he'll appreciate some breaks in it and stuff like that. So we uh, we did the uh, the arrangement as it is, and um, we wanted to do something sort of different, something spacey, something that wasn't being done by everybody else. Well, you certainly did that. Well, in retrospect, I could say, yeah, I didn't at that time, I, because everybody would put it down when they would hear it. They would say, yeah, it's okay, but you're not going to have anybody play that thing on the radio. Oh, Come on, my God. <laughs> so I didn't. I didn't have the same impression everybody else did. I thought it was a failure before we even started. <laughs> it's got that buzz sound, you know, at the beginning, that kind of buzzing, oscillating kind of sound, which is very cool. I mean, it's really out there. Now, that beginning, that sound at the beginning, the most arresting sound, I think, on record, is something that we recorded at Leon Russell's house. Huh. Ken was Ken was fooling around with his guitar with a fuzz tone, and a tremolo through through um, a reverb, Fender reverb amp, and they would record in the kitchen on four tracks. And when the tape got to the end, they would just take the tape and flip it over and record going the other way. So they were effectively erasing the things that we had done. Oh. Well, they they flipped the tape over, and he didn't hit record right away. And um, uh, Ken had been fooling around with this sound on the on the uh, Bixby and the uh, and the tremolo. And so when they went back to play something back, all of a sudden this enormous sound came out of the speakers. And uh, that was the opening of Too Much to Dream. I said, cut that thing off, we'll use it for something. And oh, before wow. you knew it, we were in recording Too Much to Dream, and that became the beginning. Oh, wow. That's an interesting story. Yeah, so it came from another studio, literally. Right. Yeah, it was. And I know they even Dave looked at me and said, why, why? I said, I want to cut that off. It was on a spool. I said, cut that off, and we'll take it with us, because we'll be able to use that for something. With such a crazy sound, and it set the mood up for all the fuzzing and buzzing and oh, shaking yeah. in that. Yeah, it's such a haunting song. It's I think it's really a very cool song. Everybody in Texas thought we were saying I had too much to drink last night. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I went on this a website uh, just before we talked. It's called songmeanings.com. So, so what they do is they they'll put the lyrics out there, and then people say what they think it means. And so one, one guy wrote, when I was younger, I heard the original song was I Had Too Much to Drink Last Night. And of course, they changed it and got it on the air. So he thinks that the reason it was dream was so that you weren't pushing alcoholism or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, the kids in Texas always used to say that. I know what you guys are saying. That's You're talking about drinking. Well, I had a roommate in college, and, and I... 
I said, uh, it's too much to dream. We were listening to it. He said, no, it's I had too much to drink. This wasn't in Texas. This is in Chicago. <laughs> and and I said, no, it's I had too much to dream. You've got to have some imagination. And he said, well, I, I, I thought calling it too much to drink was imagination. <laughs> I read a quote that uh, you guys were one of the first psychedelic bands from Los Angeles. And it sounds yeah. like, I think I know it when I hear it, but I really, what makes psychedelic? What is that? Man, you know, I don't know. I, I Back when that was popular, I was walking through a store here called Orbox, and I saw a woman model, uh, you know, one of those mannequins. And it, she had this dress on with all these colors, and it said underneath it, psychedelic dress. <laughs> 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 I thought, hell, I don't know what psychedelic is. I thought it was some kind of music, but here it is in dress form. So I think it's just a, uh, a moniker they ha- hung on something so they could, you know, so they could explain it. I would say it's, I don't know, fuzzy, mixed up, dreamy. I used to listen to uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford, and to me, their records were psychedelic. <laughs> it, so- it sounded like uh, he was recording these things in space because he invented the multi-track system. You know, yeah, they would do all these spacey guitar things, and I always thought that sounds like it's recorded on another planet. And so, I guess to me, that would be psychedelic. So I was a teenager when your song was a hit. And in that whole era, you know, around 67 or 68, there was something magical about it, wasn't there? I mean, it was just, there was something in the air that was like so exciting and different. It really was. I think you're right. I can remember going down in Hollywood and going in places, talking about deals to producers and to companies. Everybody was eager for what was new. It was all fresh and nobody was tainted by some of the evil shit that took over later. There seemed like there was some kind of hope there. Yeah, definitely. I I wish I could go back to that feeling now. (laughs) (laughs) So after uh, that, then you had another hit song. Uh, Not as big, but still it it was a top 40 hit. Oh, Get Me to the World on Top. Yeah. That was a point of contention between uh, Dave Hassinger and I, because they put that on the same record as Too Much to Dream. I, I couldn't see how we could sell albums without a single on it but underground didn't have a hit on it and uh and i had thought that get me the world in time was going to be for that but they ended up putting it on that first i think they were just insecure that we weren't going to do anything so throw everything you can at them you know Uh, okay and then um somewhere along the line you do mass and f minor a religious based rock in greek and latin Our, our manager managed a guy named David Axelrod, who was uh, Cannonball Adderley's producer. He was kind of a jazz guy. He wanted to do this mass he had written, and our manager suggested us for the record. We ended up doing this record thinking it was, it would be a nice project. And I grew up as a Catholic boy in Catholic school, and I knew all the math and Latin and everything. So I thought it sounds kind of interesting to be able to use Latin. When did I ever think I was going to use that? Yeah. Uh, we went in the studio with him and it was, uh, you know, everything was charted out. So it was a little difficult for us since we're a garage band, you know. He was, he was used to going one, two, three, four, and everybody would hit the downbeat. We struggled a little bit with that project, but we got through it. 
but then everybody thought we went religious. They thought we had actually converted or something. <laughs> well, this was the era of the concept album, so maybe that was the concept? That just sounded like a good idea. Or, you know, if you're if you were a Catholic or a Christian, you wanted to hear you wanted to hear the mass jazzed up a little bit. This was a pretty good idea. And some of the music apparently ended up on movie soundtracks, like Easy Rider. Right. Yeah, they used to end up using one of those themes in the, for the for the whorehouse. I think so. <laughs> Seems very sacrilegious to me. I don't know. <laughs> they didn't ask us. They just put it in there. So I. I but I've always thought that was kind of nice that it got in there. Now, I, I read a couple things about your group that sound really far-fetched to me, so I want you to tell me if they're right or wrong. You guys appeared on the Pat Boone Show. Right. And we played the Mass and <laughs> Oh, my God. That's that's wild. Pat Boone. Who knew? He was very, he was very nice. He was very nice to us. And I also read, and this equally shocked me, that Kenny Loggins was part of the group at one point. Yeah, he was. He was after I left. Oh, that's after you Mark, left. Mark and the guys all stayed together, and I, I couldn't take it anymore. So, uh, And Mark got Kenny Loggins to, uh, to get in the band. So you left because you couldn't take it anymore. What exactly could you take anymore? Why did you leave? Well, you know, it's funny. Every group knows this. You know, you go through it. And everybody's enthusiastic about it and stuff. And then you start going out and touring and making money. And that, but you're not making any money. So you're spending all these hours out, getting no sleep. And uh, and when you come home, they say, "Well, you lost money on this. You know, how can I? How can you lose money doing this?" So I got tired of it. I quit. It, you know, it's amazing to to us uh, civilians. That, you know, we think all rock stars, you know, you have a hit record, you must be rich, you know, and I hear all the time talking to artists, uh, these stories about how the fact that they didn't make money or didn't make much money or lost money or something. It's hard to fathom when you're sitting where the guy on the other end of the radio is, you know? Right. And what most people don't realize is you, if you sign directly with the record company, you have somebody to call the task. We were signed with Dave Hassinger's production company. So we wanted changes or wanted something else. We couldn't get it done because he was, he was too small, you know. He wasn't Warner Brothers. Uh -huh. And I'd go to Warner Brothers and they'd say, well, we can't do that because Dave's company is in there, you know. So it's important how you get signed up, whether or not you make any money. Now, so you left, and then what did you do? Uh, well, I first started doing other bands. I did uh, Todd Rundgren and Sparks and Ananda Shankar, people like that. You know, I'd made albums with them. I think I did about five albums with Todd. And, and then I started uh, producing and directing television shows, commercials, and uh, children's shows. Those are near to my heart. So you leave in, like, what, 68, something like that, 69? 68. Yeah. yeah, and then the band itself breaks up in 70. You know, I don't know what happened after me. I never looked back. I never listened to it. The management had told us, you guys are failures. You know, we weren't the Beatles and we weren't the Rolling Stones. So I always felt like we were failures. And I didn't like thinking back on that. Hardly failures, you know. I mean, how many bands are the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? <laughs> well, but the management makes you feel like you should be doing something that you're not doing. You know, uh, it's always something you should be doing. But then, at some point, you all get back together. We got together in 1999. 
and I had a studio at my house where we started recording, and we put out about six CDs, something like that. And these were the original guys? The original guys, yeah. But we didn't have the influence of uh, anybody else over us, nobody telling us what was good or bad or anything, so the stuff is really what we liked. <laughs> and were you touring and doing all that at the same time? We didn't think of that at first, but then Stephen Van Zandt called me one day and said, I dare you to come back here and play the Cave Stop event, whatever, one year from now. I said, okay. <laughs> but we did. And, and at some point, people discovered the psychedelic era all over again. There was an album called Nuggets, which was a bunch of that. I read that I Had Too Much to Dream actually led that off. Yeah, it did, and it's funny because I never knew about it. that time I was doing TV stuff, and my son told me, hey, you know, there's a record with you on it, a Nuggets record. I didn't pay much attention to that, and um, I, I didn't know about it until probably three or four years after it came out. Going back to the late 60s, you must have done a ton of touring after you had such a big hit. We did a lot of driving around, and we, and we got to go to Europe, which a lot of groups didn't get to go to Europe. Our manager managed Donovan in America. You then trade with an artist. To be able to go there, you had to trade with somebody. Really? Huh. We traded with Donovan, and we got to go and play England and, and Greece and Italy and Spain and uh, Amsterdam. And did you enjoy doing that, or were you still like mainly a studio guy? I liked Amsterdam. Yeah, it was actually kind of fun to get to... Uh, that's, I'll never forget the revelation when they said... I said, we just want to stay in the studio and make stuff. And they said, you can't. You have to go out on the road and play it live. Crap, I never thought about playing this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing these days? Well, right now I'm on a hiatus with this coronavirus thing. And I'm not wearing a mask right now, just so you know. Um, I'm Now I'm feeling threatened. I didn't want to didn't want to spark you there. This is a we have such a good connection here that you know. <laughs> um, we're still going to go in and record some stuff. We've been working with Peter Lewis of Moby Grape. I don't know if you remember him. I remember the group. He, I don't remember him specifically. No. He lives here near us, and so we've been recording some stuff with him. Uh, I don't know if we'll make another record or not, but they have enough by us already. Who knows? Your last album was in 2014, is that right? 2014 was, was the album. Uh-huh. And we've enjoyed all those albums. That was, that was so much fun making them without having anybody tell us what to do or, what, or why to do or why not to do. So if people want to buy your albums, where do they go? ElectricPrunes67.com ElectricPrunes67.com Yeah. Got it. That's the whole nugget right there. Your music meant a lot to me back in the day, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you this afternoon. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you too, Mark. All right. Thank you, James Lowe of The Electric Prunes. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of RPM 45.